Hi, I'm Shane Safir. And I'm Alcine Mumby, and this is Street Data Pod, where we dream with you about next-generation schools that affirm, love, and value every learner. Here we have conversations about healing, hope, and listening at the margins. So good morning, community. We have a quick announcement for you before we dive into episode 15. We wanted to let you know that today is the last episode of season two, and we'll be going on a summer hiatus. We hope you all will too, to support your own rest and ours. Season three will launch on August 10th of 2023 with 10 really dynamic episodes. And just a heads up that season three will focus on what does the street data model look like in action? We're going to bring on teachers, and district leaders and school leaders and even some students to think about what this all looks like on the ground. So today's episode is just yours truly and Alcine Mumby, one of my favorite humans on the planet. And we're going to be in conversation with each other, reflecting on season two, but also digging into some of our own leadership journeys. So here's a warm-up question for you, Alcine. What is something you have read or listened to lately that captured your imagination and why? I don't know if this captured my imagination, but did it send me into a space? A colleague sent me this episode of a podcast of these two psychologists, a black woman and a white woman. It's called Cheaper Than Therapy. And they talk about these concepts. One of the concepts they talked about, the concept that I listened to was about resentment and like what resentment looks like, feels like in relationships, feels like in your body, or not like, obviously, they're not telling you what it looks like, but what to look out for and how you know it's like happening in relationships. Mm. And dear God, did that send me on a tizzy. (laughs) I listened to that joker like three times. I was in my journal, realized there was some stuff that I'm still dealing with with my dad. Mm. And so it's been sitting with me for like the past month and a half, like really, (laughs) like it's been a while. So I'll we maybe we'll put that in the show notes. But man, they give you some great journaling questions to think about. And whew. so, you know, <laughs> I love that. I love that. It's, it's, you know, podcasts are like the people's medium. Oh, my now, gosh. Right. Where we can access all this. Now, it brings me back to one of our intentions, yes. which was really to kind of share and create access to the knowledge around street data without people having to pay for yep book or a contract. Hopefully they read the book. But anyway, thank you for sharing (laughs) that. So what's something you've been reading lately that has captured your imagination, your heart, and why? So I'm trying to read more fiction. Mm -hmm. And right now I'm about a quarter of the way through a really phenomenal novel called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. I've seen seen it. it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating to read because it's about gaming. It's about this pair of friends who have like a long and deep history but in their young adulthood develop a a video game together that I think is going to become wildly successful and I am like if there's such thing as the opposite of a gamer I'm that like I'm so not (laughs) like my younger son and co-parent love games and that's like their thing and I just can't relate at all so a lot of the technical stuff is kind of beyond me but it's a beautifully written piece of fiction and I just love like her dialogue is really great and it's got nuances around disability and race and gender and sexuality and Mm. and power and I just think like a good piece of fiction that 
it can illuminate so much about social dynamics and power. I love how you introduce yourself, especially when you talk about your name and your last name means writer or scribe, right? Yeah. When you read books, are you also reading them for like the style or the like the writing? Yes and no. So I would say I try to be in the experience of reading books without hyperanalyzing them. But at the same time, I've been working a little bit on a memoir about my parenting journey and how I ended up in Canada, which you knew. Yeah. And so definitely when I read memoirs or excerpts of memoirs, I'm like, oh, damn, this person's a really good writer. Like currently I'm rereading Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. Mm-hmm. My younger son, Maximo, is reading that for school. He needed a discussion partner. So I'm his discussion partner. Oh, so <laughs> we great. have a FaceTime date tonight to talk about it. But I mean, that's a that's a really excellent memoir it's like he's just so funny and it's very like beautifully written so yeah I think I'm analyzing a little bit the genre as I read it that's so funny because I mean listen as a budding podcaster right like I I do listen to podcasts differently now that (laughs) that we produce when Maya has spoiled me I'm like oh they could use a soundscape right there it's really hard like I lost track of their ideas all these things so anyway I get it I get it yeah my first question for you Shane is so this book came out a couple of years ago and you haven't stopped, like, yes, you're doing all these other things, but you, you actually have kind of shifted a little bit to where you are working with teams to actually implement the street data model cycle. What are you finding as you're doing this work with teams and what are your lessons from the field? Thanks for that question. I really appreciate it because I'm in, definitely I'm in a deep learning phase around this right now and how to, how to get people not just shifting their mindsets and their paradigm around data, but actually moving in really different ways of being and leading and teaching. So I would say you kind of named it the big shift in the like delivery model, if you will, for lack of a better word, has been from a lot of content training and keynotes to more extended communities of practice. And I've been building those in real time with Dr. J, Jamila Dugan, who's a frequent guest on the pod. And it's been really wonderful to create this kind of mini series community of practice structure where people are coming and learning and we're modeling different approaches in the book, but then they have to go do work in between. They have to apply the learning, right? And we've built different like tasks, performance tasks for them. And we just are wrapping up the first round of those. There's been four of them going and, and setting up for next year. So what are some of the things I've learned from that? I think the first thing is a reaffirmation that student voice changes the conversation. Yes. Student voice, literally just centering the voices of the babies about their own experiences changes the conversation. Yep. And sometimes that's at a really subtle and fine grain level, but it's like this transformational change that you just, it's almost like the, the 3D pictures that you stare at and then it's like suddenly it pops out, right? Mm. And I'll give you an example of that, not from the community of practice. I was asked to keynote an event last week. It's a British Columbia inclusive education conference. So it's like leaders from across the province who are working in what here is called inclusive ed in the States is more like working with students with learning differences or special education. And I did a keynote, which is not my favorite genre, but it was fine. And then I got to facilitate a panel of five students with disabilities and learning differences. And some of the comments those young people made in a room with 300 adults who have influence, right, were so powerful in their specificity and their simplicity, whether it was about 
IEP goals and how a lot of times a student's IEP goal really puts the onus of change on the child and doesn't recognize the responsibility of the system. Like, child, you know, students should self-advocate more around blah, blah, blah. And the kids were like, I can't do that. Like, I don't have the power to do that. I need you all to change. Mm. Or a, one that really hit my heart hard was this boy who talked about every time the teacher says, okay, students, go form a group. He ends up alone or he ends up with other kids who are marginalized and how that feels. It hit my heart so hard. And it's like such a simple thing. We're like, oh, it's innocent. Go form a group. But it's it's actually if you're a student who's neurodivergent or who has a learning disability, that's an opportunity for you to get cast to the margins. I think in a similar vein of learning I have is that we can let students lead around this work, yes. right? So Dr. J and I got to be with a group of 50 11th graders a couple weeks ago, and those students had copies of street data. They were in teams in their school. They defined inquiry questions or equity center challenges, and then they did the whole cycle. They are a student community practice, and they were presenting their recommendations with the superintendent and adults from their schools in the room. I think it's really a major accelerant to change to have students lead on this. Like, I really hope people listening, if you have the opportunity to invest in a student community of practice where students work maybe with a couple adults, but the adults are a little bit decentered and the students get to define the issues and pursue change, that that system is changing because students are voicing their issues and their dreams and the things they want to change. Yes. All right, Alcine. I know that you, like me, kind of identify as a teacher at your core. You were an amazing teacher. I got to see some of that. And I want to invite you to reflect on what are some of the beautiful pedagogical practices that you would love to see more educators play with and center? COVID allowed us to see very clearly that learning happens outside of school buildings, mm -hmm. right? Like if you didn't know that, and I'm talking about beyond a field trip, right? And so that is something that when I'm working with educators and we're trying to figure out like how do we re-engage kiddos and get them involved more, you know, especially as a result of COVID or as in response to COVID, right? Like there's all the complaints about kids not being engaged. And I think, or kids kids doing certain behaviors. And to me, I see those behaviors as, as symptoms of disengagement, right? Yeah. And so what are the ways in which we can get kiddos re-engaged? And guess what? Let's Let's get them out of the building. And I'm not talking about field trips. I'm actually talking about creating projects that have them embedded in the community where they are working and learning from experts. And what I mean by experts are folks who have lived experiences with the things that they are studying. I think about a project that I did when I was running my school in Oakland where we had success practices, which were more like 21st century skills. And so the very first project that we would do with some of the kiddos because we, we looped so we couldn't do the same projects every year but like one of the ninth to tenth grade projects we would do is having the kiddos explore our success skills in the community so they would have to like go interview some people at Clorox because we were downstairs and I had a connection at Clorox and the there was a bank Citibank had like a headquarters there and even like mom and pop shops right like go to the burrito shop what do you where do you see these you know collaboration project management where do you see these skills in real time 
time and in real life. And so they had to go and embed and do some observation, talk to the people, and then make recommendations as to how they could use, we call them leadership skills, how they could use the leadership skills to make their teams work even better. Hmm. And one of the greatest things is there was like a skateboard shop that the owner was kind of a little bit of afraid of young people, especially black and brown young people. And But we had a bunch of skateboarders in my, in my school, right, who were black and brown, mostly black boys who were skateboarding. The shop owner was talking about how he his was losing revenue, he wasn't open, he would close like right before school would end because he didn't want a whole bunch of teenagers in their in his shop because he thought that they were going to like shoplift. And so the kids created like this plan and said, hey, I'll even teach. He had like a built-in ramp in there. And so one of our kids were like, I can teach skateboarding lessons and it'll bring traction into your shop. And so the guy tried it for like a month and it did. It raised revenue. Kids were in the shop. Wow. He, it, he created a better relationship with the kids in the community. The kids got to practice their skills in a safe space. It was so cool. And they were like, whoa, I'm doing something. So I think that a that's a beautiful practice. The more it gets back to authenticity, but it's it's just you know, what we know to be true about the best parts of our young people, mm-hmm. right? And then the second thing I would think I would love to see educators play a little bit more with is metacognition. So in my work, I work a lot with adult learners, right? And I still see myself as a teacher, and I have a lot of joy and fun in that work. And one of the hardest things to do is to get adults to be metacognitive. Remember when you would, like, give your kids a reflection, and they'd give you, like, one sentence, and you would, like, you had, like, 10 prompts or suggested prompts, and they'd give you, like, one sentence per prompt. Listen, adults be doing the same thing, Shane. And I'm like, hmm, can you say more about this? Can you tell me more about this process? Can you tell me more about your learning? What was challenging? What was hard? Adults have a hard time being metacognitive about their own practice. Yet, when they go through that, and we have a whole bunch of ways, I have conversations, I have these practices and these protocols that are really empowering and very affirming, because I think the biggest fear is about like the criticism of being vulnerable, right? Like I'm going to share the things that I didn't do so well in this project or in this unit. I structure those things in same ways that you would scaffold for your learners, right? And then there's a bunch of joy and then there's a bunch of ahas and people are like, whoa, and then they get it. And then, the, and then we go back and we're like, okay, so where are the metacognitive opportunities you can put in your unit, you can put in your lesson, you can put in your day, you can put in your week. They're very flexible because they see the power of it, right? They, they realize, because, you know, John Dewey says that, like, we don't learn from having experiences. We learn from reflecting on the experiences that we have. If educators are really not playing with this concept of metacognition, then we're not even getting to the real learning. And there's this like, interesting research that came out of UK that says like if you develop metacognitive practices very deeply and intentionally, you gain like three or four months of learning from kiddos. Wow. Yeah, because the, because the kids learn to be learners and they learn how to engage themselves and they learn, oh, this is, oh, I remember I check out when this happens, because when I was reflecting, oh yeah, that was the thing, or oh my gosh, I I keep losing my drafts, I have to come up with a different organizational system, and then they learn to create an organizational system system that works for them, right? And so that's the learning, right? It's not the it's not the content, it's it's content and, and how do I integrate it and have it live in my being and body. <laughs>
So you have another book coming out, which is about pedagogy of voice. And I know that you're engaging in a very interesting process around this third book. So first, I would love for you to share the process and then share the why. Like, why did you want to go about this book in this way? So for the record, I don't have another book coming out. I have another book (laughs) In gestation, very early, We're early manifesting gestation. manifesting it. No, I'm joking. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. So I think folks listening probably know that street data has, you know, caught a lot of attention and energy in the field. I think it's maybe reached about seventy-five to 80,000 people by now in the last couple of years. Wow. And there's been a lot of interest in Chapter 5, which is about student agency and the pedagogy of student voice. Mm-hmm. And Corwin has invited a proposal for a sequel that is focused on the pedagogy of voice. And I've been thinking about it and resting with it in my heart for quite a while. And where I arrived at is I don't want to write a book to write a book. I don't see myself as somebody who's just going to churn out books for the rest of my career. (laughs) I only want to write a book about the pedagogy of voice if it can be rooted in the lived experiences of teachers right now in this deeply complex time and responsive to what teachers are grappling with and wrestling with, as well as what they're already doing, because there are brilliant teachers all over, right, who are amplifying student voice right now as we talk to each other. Mm -hmm. So what I decided to do is like my own little self-funded R&D process where I'm going to hold four focus groups with teachers from across the globe, mostly North America. I'm doing it in partnership with an incredible teacher leader, Marlo Bagsik from San Mateo Union High School District, as well as Crystal Watson, who's a math teacher leader we're going to have on soon, and Dr. Sasan Javer. And it's pretty exciting because we just put out this simple RFP and we got 140 teachers within a week who were interested and wanted to talk with us. And we had to narrow that down. So we're going to, we chose 20 to 25. We're going to do four focus groups and the first one's tomorrow. (gasps) How exciting. I feel very honored to get to listen to folks. And it's also, it's, you know, it's an application of the model because I don't know what people are going to say, and I don't know if it's going to take me and my thinking around this book in a totally different direction, but I'm really trying to arrive with openness of heart and mind to like, where are folks at and what would be what would be useful? So you're kind of collecting your own street data for the next book. (laughs) I love it. Oh, 100%. Yeah, that's the intention. That's the intention. And I don't know if that seems crazy. I mean, my concept for the book is that it'll highlight the work of several of these teachers and be a collaborative project and on the, you know, sort of more like operational end that the royalties would be shared with teachers because I really want to figure out how to get money back into the pockets of teachers who are so deeply underpaid. So there's lots of like things, there's lots of experimental energy around the book with like that piece, you know, the contract and the process and the writing and the tool collection. And we'll see. I don't know. We'll see. So back to you, my dear. Tell me about, we've, you know, we've talked a bit in this pod about epistemology or ways of being. And, you know, you have this like beautiful way of being with young people that I got to witness when you were a principal. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit 
sort of bring the tacit to the explicit. Like what are some ways of being in the classroom that you value, that you often model, and that you want educators to lean into? And then to what extent do those come from your family, your community, your cultural capital as a Black woman? I think one of the first ways that I think is important to be in the classroom is to be a listener. And I got this from my mom. I started teaching when I was like 22. I was a baby and my mom had had a home daycare center. My mom was really good with young people. And, you know, it was not uncommon to come home. I'd come home and there'd be a gazillion teenagers just like chilling in the living room because my mom just wanted them to have some place to be that wasn't like, you know, dangerous and unsafe. And I'd be like, oh, my gosh, they're eating up all my food. Like, what's going on? Right. Like all this stuff. But like my mom just, you know, so, so one of the things that she would say and she modeled this with me and for me was, first of all, <laughs> growing up in our house, listening was doing. So my mom would be like, okay, guys, I'm about to clean up the, 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 the foyer, get all your shoes and stuff. And we, you know, she'd say, she only said things three times, actually twice. The third time it was action, right? But like, we would be like, yeah, we heard you. My mom was like, no, if you heard me, I would hear three sets of feet running towards the foyer to get their things, right? Like my mom was like, hearing is doing. Yes, I know. And it was yes. so simple. And so when I went into the classroom as a teacher and I'm listening to all these teenagers and teenagers have a lot to say and they, they have very big and busy lives, right? But I just remember listening to them specifically around like, what are their interests? Because my intention was to figure out how do I morph my curriculum and our units around their interests, Right. Mm. So that leads me to choice. Choice was also something that was deeply honored in my family with my mom in particular. Like one of her biggest pet peeves would be false choices. She's like, then that's not a choice. Like if I want you to do something, I'm going to tell you to do it. But if I give you a choice, it's really going to be a choice. Right. And so I thought about that, too, in my classroom about like, how can we be intentional with the choices we are giving kiddos. When you give choice and choice around specific things, it helps to um, increase rigor and learning, right? And so my mom would rail against like false choices. Like she she believed like a choice should be a choice. You could do this or you could do this. And, and both were neutral and had no like, she was not, you know, tied to the outcome. But if it was something she would tie to the outcome, then it wouldn't be a choice. She's like, I need you to clean up now or I need you to do this, 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 and this, right? So anyway, so the idea of choice was something that really impacted how I was and what I valued in the classroom, really giving kiddos choice. I would give them choice about what they wanted to study. We would always do like background and general information. But then when it came for project time, the kids had choices how deep they wanted to go, like what they wanted to major in. I also believed in giving kids choice in terms of how they want to demonstrate what they know because they know themselves best. And so, you know, I think that's important. If a kid knows I, I do this thing really well, you know, they wouldn't have choice around the, the things that we had to, like you got to learn how to write an essay and you got to learn how to do regions and you got to learn those things. But when it came to the things that I really valued and the learning that I really um, held up, then they always had a choice. And then this is the third one that I think is super important. I remember I got into, my mom and I got into something, you know, preteen time, and she called me a name in the heat of the moment. It was something like stupid or something like that. And... I remember just being so floored by that, right? Like that that was not a common occurrence. Like it was like a it was akin to a slap in the face and I remember just getting up from the conversation and going to my room and then my mom coming in a little bit later and apologizing. And she was like, "I am so sorry. I didn't mean for that to come out. I don't feel that way. I don't believe that thing." And I was like 12 and it was like, "Oh my god. 
it was paradigm shifting for me to hear my mom apologize to me. And so as a teacher, there were times, I mean, listen, I was a crappy teacher in the beginning. (laughs) And I'd be like, y'all, I am so sorry. Yesterday's lesson was trash. I'm going to try again. How can you help me get better? And that's when I started just like asking the kids, like, here's what I was trying to teach y'all. Here's what I tried to do. Which activities actually led to the most learning? And the kids would be like, yeah, no. You lecturing, not it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool. So, so apologizing when we get it wrong, I think is super important in creating a classroom culture where kids feel valued, seen, heard, loved, cared mm-hmm. for, all mm-hmm. of that. And, and that's really humbling when you got to apologize as, as an administrator at a whole school community meeting because you accused the wrong kid for doing something or you made a big stink out of something that was really an accident. Like all these things, like... I would have to apologize. I mean, it was just something I valued, but also it represented how I really feel about young people. I love that. I love that so much. It reminds me of this term I heard from the organizer, Chicago organizer, G2 Brown, which is ferocious humility. Yes. I never forgot that. Like, how do we bring humility? I think we can't authentically share power in the classroom or in schools unless we're willing to be humble about when we don't know, when we get it wrong, all the things that are just part of like being a human. Yeah. And I'm also not a good liar. Like I can't fake it. Like it's very clear. Like I'm like, oops, I messed up. Like there's no, like, like our mess ups don't define us. Right. But I do understand that I also came from a very loving, you know, relationship with my mom where, you know, I was loved for who I was, not what I did. But there are other folks who have real trauma around that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I posted how My brother, who's an officer in the Navy, in fourth grade, his homeroom teacher, I don't know what he did, being a fourth grader, told him he would never amount to anything. Oh, my God. In the fourth grade. So when you think about, like, the mindset that that person has about herself and about young people, good Lord. So speaking of humility, I want to ask this question because I have seen you work in ways that I think are quite beautiful. And a lot of your work centers on indigenous practices and ways of being. You are in relationship with some indigenous educators, and you have done a lot of reading and scholarship around that. How do you navigate highlighting this work as a white leader in a culturally sensitive way? It's an important and humbling question. And I think the first thing I'll say is that, like, All of us, I'm a work in progress. This is something that I constantly think about and try to bring intentionality to. I feel like it's both an inside job, right? And it's also an outside job. So one thing I can say is, so Sydney Stone Brown is an indigenous scholar that you and I need to interview at some point. We've talked about her. And she she's the person who did her PhD on the Maslow's hierarchy, like the archives around Maslow, and uncovered, right, that that framework that's so popular in Western education was built out of the Blackfoot people's knowledge system, and that the Blackfoot contribution to that was really effaced from the record. And one of the things that Dr. Stone Brown told me in that interview, which will always, always stay with me, was that she found in the archives 
many, many communications from Blackfoot people to Maslow that he never responded to. And when I asked her what that meant to her, what surprised her about that, what that meant, she said, what it means to me is that he didn't know how to be a relative. He didn't know how to be in relationship with the people that he was doing essentially ethnography with, okay? Mm -hmm. So I, I bring that up because Maslow, you know, was a white scholar and thought leader, I believe, of Jewish descent. In fact, he was a professor at Brandeis when my father, who's Jewish, went there. And this is a question that I think about all the time. What does it mean to be a relative? What does it mean to be connected to people? What does it mean to do work in a way that is not extractive, but that is that transforms the relationship and transforms systems of power? And I wouldn't say I have an answer to that, but I can say that I, you know, believe in both amplifying the work and voices of indigenous scholars and leaders and people who've written about these ideas that are underneath street data for many, many moons and have lived them for thousands of years. And I think a lot about reciprocity and and what does it mean to have a real cultural exchange and, you know, I would even say like resource exchange. Yes. I'll just to close this, I want to recommend that listeners, if you haven't yet, get your hands on Wagiwa Indigenous Pedagogies and Act for Reconciliation and Anti-Racist Education by provincial leader Joe Crona, who's up here. And there's a section of this book on page 191 and beyond called How Do I Avoid Appropriation? Where Joe breaks down what's the difference between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation. So there's a lot of work to be done here. And I don't want to pretend like I've figured it out, but it's something that I'm really conscious of and really think about a lot. Alcine, you are an esteemed and brilliant national leader <laughs> in authentic assessment and deeper learning. I want to hear from you. I'm very curious. Why do you see authentic assessment, performance assessment, and deeper learning as the heart of leading for equity? And then how do you navigate leading this work as a Black woman when the contributions of BIPOC folks in these spaces are made invisible so often? The first answer is the why. Early on in my educational career, so I knew I wanted to be a teacher at five. I like taught in preschools, like we had a preschool in high school, in my high school, and so I had taught in that preschool for four years. Realized I don't want to do the little, the little ones are a little bit challenging for me. And so when I was in NYU, like I went to NYU, they had a very good teacher education program around progressive education. And one of the early things that we would have to do is like figure out our stance in teaching and learning. That we had to develop, kind of like a not a manifesto, but like what was our own like pedagogy? What were we thinking that we had been inspired by, by our practices or what we had experienced, but also what we were learning? I had seen growing up in White Plains, New York, Westchester County, an affluent community right north of New York City that was still trying to figure out integration when I was in the, in the 80s. And I was bused along with other black kids from my part of town to this other part of town to attend a really wonderful experience, right? And, you know, so there were ways that my mom signaled to the school that this child is different and therefore should be treated differently. I also was an early reader. And so my mom got me tested because she was like, hey, what are you going to do with 
with this kid. And they were like, we, we don't think she's that. And my mom was, you know, testing me. They were like, oh, yeah, she needs gifted and talented even before the program officially began. And so my mom actually forced them to, like, do something for me. Right. Wow. But the third way that I saw. So there's like that testing piece. Right. IQ testing, which is which is so funny because I my mom kept everything. I still have my IQ test from when I was six. But I knew that testing. Right. So we had to do testing every year. And I was a good test taker. And so my test scores were good. But I saw the ways that the test score literally created a different experience between me and my peers when we got off the bus. I would go one direction, they would go another. I would also see the ways in which teachers treated them like literally, and I, you know, would talk to me really nice because I was in, you know, honors classes, even as little as like third grade, right? Like, and they were not. And the ways in which teachers would talk to them and talk to me, I would witness. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. There's a Pygmalion study. They did this twice where they told teachers, they randomly selected kids in their elementary classroom, told their teachers that some of these kids who were, had been randomly selected were in fact gifted and talented or tested high above the IQ, whatever the thing was. And so lo and behold, when they tested the kids at the end of the year, all of the kids who the teacher had been told were above you know, the, the median turned out to be, right? The impact of our belief, now they go into like what they actually did. They did that in the 60s. They did it again in the 90s, I believe. Same outcome, right? Tests have such an impact on the way in which we think that educated, that, that kids should be educated. And I knew that. And so I'm not new to this. I'm true to this. I will never agree that standardized testing is the best way to test our babies for them to know what they learned and for us to know what they learned. Not ever. Not ever. And so what's challenging about being in that space is, and, and Dr. Delpit talked about this at the last episode, people, it's so easy, and you were hinting at this also in your answer to the last question, we are constantly trying to push people to the binaries. And what we know to be true is the best educators actually play in the nuance, right? Like as anti-testing as I am, and I worked at schools that had portfolio processes where kiddos could really demonstrate what they knew with a longer jetway and, and multiple years and revisions and all that good stuff, I still, as a responsible educator, prepared my kids for the regents exams, right? So I taught them how to write really beautiful, wonderful, exploratory essays, but we also would call, I called them cheapies. Give me four sentences. It just has to hit a three. You don't got to prove nothing to nobody, but you got to prove that you know the stuff, right, on DBQs. So I think that there's that nuance, and I think that that's why so many educators of color who are in this progressive space get involved invisible like are made to be invisible because it doesn't fit that binary narrative that I think you know white supremacy culture and white dominant culture likes to project that it's this or this Hmm. and it's not And educators of color, we ain't got time to be a this or this because we're doing and we're being with the kids and we're trying to really shift outcomes for kiddos. And so I think that is one of the ways in which it makes it challenging. And I also recognize I don't have children. My mom is an ancestor. 
I can live my life relatively free. No one is requiring anything of me. And I don't have a lot of like capital that I need to generate to live my life. So I can walk into a space and I can be loud and I can be sassy and I can be spicy and I can say all the things. But I also know that that's a privilege and not a lot of black women in particular can lead in that way. And so part of my leadership journey is to, you know, I run a leadership development forum. And so part of that is how do we build that muscle as black leaders and leaders of color to take up space, to say the things in ways that are safe for you and don't, you know, penalize you in the ways that you you can't afford to lose. But how do you take up space Uh and, and, and highlight your brilliance and highlight the ways in which like you are leading that are really benefiting kiddos and communities. And so, you know, that's kind of how I lead. I'm loud. I take up a lot of space, not take up a lot of space, but I'm I'm intentional when I'm in mixed spaces of like, nah. And I also amplify the voices of. You don't make yourself small, which I love. Yeah, I don't make myself small. And I like to play. Like, Like this at the end of the day is not, it's, what I get to do is not life or death, even though like the impact of teaching and learning does have those implications. But currently, my role does not require me to, to be in the trenches in that way. And so I get to play. And, and I've been told to see a black woman playing and have the joy doing the work is also healing for some black leaders. They're like, wow, I didn't realize I could be that way. I do want to just say on our way out of this episode, a big, a big loving and somewhat sad thank you to Maya Cueva and Alice Lopez, who are going to be passing the production torch to Jess Avarenga, also a fantastic producer, but Maya's, Maya's star is rising quickly. She's all up in Netflix (laughs) and producing a documentary and we just can't, we can't keep her with us anymore. So Maya, thank you for this incredible gift of launching the pod with us and um, closing it out today, closing season two out today with us. And thank you for all the things we have learned. I don't know if like our beginning, uh, this, (laughs) you should have seen poor Shane and I, we had these like tiny little mics that were really awful. And (laughs) Maya's like, no, ma'am, you will not use those mics and have my name. (laughs) On the production side. Maya is a warm demander. She is. Maya is like an uh, understated, like, you know, I've never heard Maya like raise her voice or get annoyed, but she's like, you have like such strong, like the expectations are clear. We are going to have a high quality podcast. We are not working with your janky microphones, y'all. Just like get over it. (laughs) She was like, yes, and you need to buy this equipment and this and this, but also just making it like bringing in the soundscape, bringing in the music bringing in like this season did y'all enjoy when she brought in like the new snippets or she brought in the snippets of guests from before that was all Maya like hey I think this is something that should happen Maya and Alice and so just they make us sound really good any closing words from you Miss Cueva hi (laughs) no you guys are just making me crack up and tear up this has been such a joy working with the two of you and getting to learn together. You know, I'm learning so much about the work that both of you do and about street data and all these things. So it's just, yeah, it's bittersweet, but it's not goodbye. Thank you for that. Mm, well, thank you all. Street.
Street Data Pod friends, we have two announcements to share. First, you can get 20% off Street Data on Corwin Press's website if you use discount code STREETDATA, all caps. Second, we would love to hear your stories and questions about how Street Data Pod is shifting the way you move as an educator. So check it out. If you have a comment or a question about any episode, you can leave us a voicemail at the new Street Data Pod phone number, 415-335-9997. That's also on our website. You can also send us an email to streetdatapod at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear street data from you all, and we might even feature your voicemail on a future episode. Street Data is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby. The senior producer is Maya Cueva, and our associate producer is Alice Lopez. Our production manager is Jamie Valle. Thank you to Zoe Morgan for social media support and Corwin Press for sponsoring us. And a special shout out to Rocky Rivera for our theme music. If you want to learn more about Street Data and get your hands on a copy of the book, visit Amazon, Corwin Press, or better yet, a local, independent, or Black-owned bookstore. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time. I still have my IQ test from when I was six. It shows that I am at the 15th percentile for spatial intelligence. Nothing has changed. Okay, so like, I can't, nothing has changed, okay? Don't ask Elsine oh. for directions. <laughs> <laughs>